0: Before I begin, I have to especially recognize some old friends who are here today, John and Donna Priola and their granddaughter with them. haven't seen John and Donna in quite a while now. Uh, John's trying to think how long ago it was, aren't (laughs) you? John uh, and I were in school together at Memphis School of Preaching in the 70s. He was a second-year student when I was a first-year student, as I recall. Great gospel preacher, great family. They've done tremendous work in the kingdom over the years. And uh, they're in the Birmingham area. John works with South Central Bell, getting close to retirement now. But he also preached at West Concord. Uh, I don't remember how long, but that was my first local work when I left Memphis School of Preaching. And then John later preached there and uh, did a great work there at West Concord. He's done a great work wherever he's been. Great family They're on their way to meet other family members up in Gatlinburg for some time together. And we pray for them a safe journey, and it is great to see them and to have them with us today, we appreciate their worshiping with us so much, and others who are visiting. You are our honored guest, and we appreciate very much your attendance. I hope that you'll come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. You know, we use the word "spoiled" in in various ways. We talk about uh, spoiling our our children, or someone might say, "Well, you spoiled that surprise I had," or "You spoiled this," or "You're spoiled that." But have you ever considered the word spoiled in connection with sermons? Spoiled sermons. That's what I'd like for us to think about for a few minutes this morning is the idea of spoiling sermons and how it is that one may spoil a sermon. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, the apostle Paul writes there to the church he loved so much there at Philippi, told them that the things that had happened to him had actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He went on to say, so that it becomes has become evident in the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my change, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. But then he mentions in verse 15 some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from good will he talks about the different motives that some had for for preaching the gospel of Christ but he was thankful that the gospel was preached he said verse 18 and in this i rejoice yes and will rejoice and of course he concludes this particular uh, passage that we have cited here through verse twenty-one, by stating, "For to me to live is Christ, and to die, is gain." A verse that we looked at in another context just last week, if you recall. How is it that sermons may be spoiled? Let me suggest, first of all, that we start with me. <laughs> we start with the preacher. Any preacher is capable of of spoiling his own sermon. How can he do that? Well, he can do it, first of all, by lack of preparation. And the Apostle Paul makes that abundantly clear in some of what he wrote to the younger preacher, Timothy. When he admonished him at chapter 4, verses 13 and following, "'Till I come, give attention,' as the New King James says, "'to reading, to exhortation,' To doctrine, do not neglect the gift that is in thee or in you, which uh, was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And then he goes on, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. And so it is incumbent upon every gospel preacher to adequately prepare before he dares to step in any pulpit anywhere. Preparation, certainly is absolutely crucial, and a lack thereof is going to spoil a sermon. But the preacher may also spoil his sermon by an unconsecrated life. And we're reminded of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2 to the Jewish readers there, if you will. In Romans two twenty-one through 24, those who were insistent upon keeping the law and not understanding the distinction between the law and the gospel and that the gospel was now in effect. And he asked them, "'You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? "'You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal?' You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? He asks these Judaizing teachers. But in asking that question in that context, it is certainly appropriate to apply it to the context that we are applying it today. That by an unconsecrated life, by a failure to practice, as we often say, what one preaches, the preacher may negate or spoil his own sermon. But he may also spoil his sermon by failing to preach what is needed. And that reminds us of what the Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesian elders of as he called them to himself at Miletus and rehearsed his work among them and he said, "In how I kept back nothing that was helpful, as the New King James says, but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. I did not keep back anything that was helpful. And that's what a preacher must be determined to do. To, as Paul said in that same context, preach the whole counsel of God. That which is needed. That which is helpful. And a preacher needs to ascertain those needs that are there, specifically in a congregation, and address those needs. But a preacher may also spoil his own sermon by by lacking courage to preach the truth. I've mentioned before that I think it was the late Gus Nichols who said, I could preach the truth all of my life and still lose my soul eternally. How is that possible? Well, by preaching truth, yes, but not the whole truth. Kind of relates to our previous point about preaching what is needed. One could preach something that is true and yet never deal with the truth that it must courageously be proclaimed whether it is well received or not because we are to preach the word as Paul admonished Timothy elsewhere in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine. And so the preacher, by lacking courage to preach truth, is spoiling his own sermon. And the passage we cite is Ephesians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul coveted the prayers of his brothers in Christ for himself. Near the end of that exhortation, relating to taking upon oneself the whole armor of God, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now verse 19, and for me, in other words, pray for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly. Not brashly, not harshly. That's not the meaning of bold but courageously, plainly, with openness of speech is the meaning of the word, to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak, there it is again, boldly as I ought to speak. And so the preacher can spoil his sermon by lacking the courage to preach the whole counsel of God, to preach the truth. But, in relation to that, he may spoil his sermon by, by an unchristian attitude in that which he preaches and in his everyday life. In Matthew 10:16, Jesus reminded the disciples there, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Use the kind of judgment that is conducive to a receptivity, a ready receptivity of the gospel of Christ. And don't manifest an unchristian attitude. Preach with passion, yes. Preach with conviction, yes. Preach with courage, yes. But, but certainly not with an unchristian attitude. Needless sarcasm, ridicule. Uh, abuse, all of that will spoil a sermon. And so as important as truth is, truth needs to be preached with the right attitude. But again, the preacher may spoil his own sermon by violating rules of successful communication. He may preach too long. You know, it's like the example of the person who came into the worship service on one occasion, a little boy sitting there, he asked the little boy if the preacher was through preaching, a little boy said, yeah, he's through, but he ain't quit yet. <laughs> well, we need to know when uh, when to quit. We could uh, violate rules of of effective communication by being unnecessarily long in our speaking or by poor arrangement, you know. When a sermon is concluded, one should be able to look back on that sermon and realize that it did have some structure to it, that it did have some order to it, which would hopefully be conducive to one's retention of what one has just heard. Rather than, as the expression goes, he took his text and he just went everywhere preaching the word. Like the old Indian's estimate of a sermon, ugh, loud thunder, big wind, no rain. We want to make sure that there is some some rain at the end of the sermon, so to speak. In other words, that there is something there that is communicated in a way that hopefully will be conducive and helpful to the hearer. And so as we think about those who may spoil a sermon, the preacher himself may do so by lack of preparation, by an unconsecrated life, by failing to preach what is needed, by lacking the courage to preach truth, by an unchristian attitude, and yes, by violating rules of successful and effective communication. But now we come to the second group, church members. Church members may also spoil sermons. How so? Well, by the same way, one of the ways that we mentioned regard preachers, by unconsecrated lives. You remember, of course, the statement of Christ in the great Sermon on the Mount when he began there in verse 13, "'You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, flavor how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and to be trodden underfoot by men.'" And then he goes on, "'You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill.'" cannot be hidden, neither do men light a lamp, put it under a bushel, but on a a lampstand so that it gives light to all that are in the house. And then the concluding thought here in this section of that great sermon is, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so that example is a powerful entity indeed, the example of the member, every member of the body of Christ. It must be protected, it must be perpetuated powerfully if indeed we're going to avoid spoiling the sermons that we hear. Matters not what we may hear and how effective it may be presented and how well organized it may be and how scriptural indeed it may be if we fail to apply it to our lives as members of the body of Christ, then indeed have we not, in effect, spoiled the sermon. Another way church members do that is by seeking worldly praise over truth. And we live in a time, tragically, where that attitude is more prevalent than we would like to think that it is. That is, those who have compromised truth in order to be more acceptable to those around them in the religious world, going along to get along seeking popularity or praise over, over the pure gospel of Christ. And it reminds us of what the Apostle Paul wrote in the context of writing to the churches of Galatia and to those Galatian brethren who were being seduced to go back under Judaism, and he was making a fervent plea to them to remain steadfast in the faith. You remember at verse 10, of Galatians 1, he asks this question, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? And then he, he answers, For if I still pleased men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now certainly we don't want to alienate and antagonize men and women anywhere unnecessarily. But we dare not compromise truth in order to avoid that antagonism. We dare not Seek the worldly praise over the truth of the gospel. Well, here's another way church members can spoil a sermon, by absenteeism. Hebrews 10.25, of course, is a very familiar text to us, I'm sure, where the Hebrews writer, encouraging those who were being seduced to abandon their Christianity and to once again embrace a system that was dead, That is the system of Judaism. The writer in verse 24 to gain the context more fully said, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And then he adds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching it. I believe the day there to be in the context, the approaching destruction of Jerusalem. But notice what he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. There is value in coming together and assembling together. And I realize that there were those here who were, who were in danger of giving up assembling altogether. But as has been asked before, even if that is the immediate context, when does it become a sin to forsake an assembly willfully with no reason other than choosing not to be there. Does one have to give up assembling altogether in order to be guilty of neglecting or sinning in this regard? When does the sin kick in? The first time you willfully neglect, second, third? Where is it? And so the principle is clearly set forth, as is the principle set forth in the passage we've also noted Matthew 6.33. But seek first, Jesus says, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Tonight at 6 p.m. Tonight at 6 p.m. The question would be, as has been asked, where will you be? Will you be... Supporting the sermon by your presence or spoiling it by your willful absence. And then finally, sinners. Sinners may spoil a sermon. How so? By hearing with prejudice. In hermeneutics, it's called the dogmatic approach, and we've mentioned that before. In other words, I'm dogmatic in what I believe, and I'm determined that there's something in here that's going to prove me to be right. And that's the approach that I'll take as I study the Scriptures. I have my mind made up, in effect, and I'm going to find something here to substantiate what I'm already thinking. That's prejudice. And in the ministry of our Lord, as we mentioned in Bible class this morning, One can see how deeply seated prejudice was in many of those who saw the miracles that Jesus did, freely admitted that he had done wondrous works and yet sought to kill him, to get rid of that influence rather than being favorably impressed and ultimately led to follow him as a result of those miracles. Lazarus was raised from the dead and the Jewish leaders could not deny it. And instead of becoming his followers, for the most part, as a result of that undeniable miracle, they sought to do what? Kill Lazarus and get rid of the evidence. That's prejudice gone to seed, isn't it? There's a great deal of prejudice still, tragically, in our world today. We've referenced Acts chapter 7 in relation to this point because it relates to Stephen, remember? And the sermon that Stephen preached before the Sanhedrin, it was a great sermon. No question about it, it was a great sermon. But we learn from the latter part of Acts chapter 6 that they had already set up false witnesses Against this man, there was a prejudice that was in place so clearly that there was no real possibility that Stephen's sermon, no matter how powerful it had been, could have possibly reached these prejudiced minds. And it didn't. They gnashed at him with their teeth when he was finished and took him out and stoned him. But let's note something here. Church members may also be guilty of this, this doesn't simply apply to sinners. It can go back to our previous point about church members, can it? We can have our minds made up at times about certain things and whatever the preacher says is not going to change it. And I can assure you that whatever I'm saying on the subject, I'm determined and convinced that it's from Scripture and not my own opinion. But think with me about how many sermons on dancing, for example, have been spoiled that have been preached from pulpits? How many sermons on modesty have been spoiled that have been preached from pulpits and basically been excused by, well, that's the preacher's opinion. He may think he has to say that, but doesn't really apply to me. There's no telling how many sermons on modesty have been spoiled by church members or on dancing or perhaps on social drinking, even on church discipline. And we've just finished a a rather extensive series on church discipline. And we've pointed out that when withdrawal of fellowship occurs, it's not the elders who withdraw, they initiate the process, but it's the membership that withdraws fellowship. And if the membership fails to cooperate in a scriptural process of withdrawal of fellowship, then the members have spoiled every one of those sermons. Every one of them. And perhaps any number of subjects could be added to the list, couldn't they? Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. How many? How many? But back to sinners. They may also spoil a sermon by failing to make a prompt decision. You remember Felix in Acts 24, 24? Through 25, go your way and when I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. And as far as we know, Felix never had that convenient season. And then Agrippa, Acts 26, 28, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. Almost, but lost. And so as we conclude, we conclude that all spoiled sermons are really spoiled by the devil. He's the one behind it all. And if a sermon that is scriptural is spoiled, it's the devil who does it. He either does it through the preacher, he either does it through the church member, or he does it through the sinner. And why does he do it? He does it because he knows the power is in the Word. Romans 1.16 As Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. And so our task is to stop the devil from spoiling sermons. And the only question that remains is what will you do with this one? You're outside of Christ. We plead with you to express your belief in Christ by repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins because that's God's plan of salvation. Except you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, John 8:24 I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all in like manner perish, Luke 13:3 and again at verse five. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father, who is in heaven, Matthew 10:32 And yes, he who believes Jesus said, and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16:16. 16, 16. And if you haven't done those things, the Lord waits to add you to his kingdom, the church over which the Lord Jesus Christ is head, that you may be a sermon yourself by your life and do all that you can to lead others to that same saving knowledge that you have come to and embraced and obey. If you need to come home to your first love as one who has been guilty of spoiling sermons in one of the ways that we've outlined, in a way that has brought reproach upon the church, Come home and determine that you're going to spend the rest of your life, as much as you have of it, determining to support and not spoil sermons that are based upon the Word of God and the Word of God alone. As we stand to sing, will you come?